Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. He was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my hosts as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I want you to imagine you're a fly on the wall. You've buzzed past security, up the elevator, and attached yourself to the wall of a courtroom on the 11th floor of the West Palm Beach Courthouse. It's got a great view. You can see the Breakers Hotel on the island town of Palm Beach, the red tiles on the roof of the museum that used to be the palatial home of Henry Flagler, founder of Standard Oil. And the scene in the courtroom itself is pretty interesting. There's a trial currently underway, Williams v. Atlantic Sugar Association. This is in 1999. And what do you see? A table where the lawyers who are suing a massive sugarcane company are sitting. In this David versus Goliath story, they are definitely not Goliath. They're taking on this gargantuan corporation on behalf of thousands of Caribbean sugarcane cutters. Then there are the defense lawyers, the high-priced attorneys who were hired to defend the sugarcane company against claims that they underpaid the workers. One thing's obvious. The company's lawyers make a lot more money than the other side. These hotshots are decked out in three-piece suits, and you're occasionally blinded by the light refracting off the nugget-sized diamond ring one of them sports. One thing all the lawyers do have in common? Exhaustion. It's the end of a long, draining three-week trial, and now it's time for the closing statements, which surprisingly include a bit of entertainment. It comes in the form of Willie Gary. Willie was a master of the visual. This is Marie Brenner. You can see her sitting in the gallery, taking notes for her Vanity Fair article on the case. Anyway, she's talking about Willie Gary, the flamboyant jury spellbinder who's representing the sugar company. I could see, having seen him run up the steps with his crocodile shoes on, that he was a master of the visual. Success begets success. But literally, he spelled it out. He said, it's 15% what a jury hears and 85% what a jury sees. And what's there to see? Well, props. In closing argument, he had prepared this little sign that he held, and it put, this is a frivolous case. (laughs) 
In other words, it was a case concocted by the Cutter's lawyers just to make a buck. It didn't have any merit. He keeps holding up the blue and yellow sign. This is a frivolous case. This is a frivolous case. This is a frivolous case. He says that more than 20 times in his closing. That was his argument. This is a frivolous case. These guys are just here for money. This is all about the grubby lawyers trying to get money. Quote, if you gave them a verdict in this case, they would be laughing all the way to the bank. Dave Gorman was one of the they, one of the lawyers Willie was attacking. And I I went up to the judge and I said, Your Honor, this is utterly unethical. It's improper and you need to tell him to stop. And the judge wouldn't do anything. Yeah, it was a classic case of projection. That here comes Willie with his Bentleys and his his Gulfstream jet called Wings of Justice saying the other side with their backpacks are in it for the money. Willie lays it on. You know, sometimes life is not fair, but you have to keep on believing and you have to never give up if you believe something is right because somewhere the truth will set you free. Ten years of fighting a frivolous lawsuit. Dave has already given his closing argument and now it's time for his rebuttal. And he just can't do it. When Willie got up and spent his entire time just railing about me or about us, I was literally physically too tired to get up. A trial is, a jury trial in particular, I mean, that's hard work. It may not seem like it, but you have to be paying attention every minute of the day. You're up, you're down, you're thinking on your feet. And try doing that for a month. In the Atlantic trial, no respite. Dave's wiped. He turns to his co-counsel and says, I can't do it. I, I'm just, I can't do it. I don't have the strength to get up and, uh, and talk. The other lawyer, Edward Tuddenham, does have something to say. I remember feeling pretty desperate because the trial had not gone well. I was the last person to argue. And this was my final chance to try to convince this jury. And I went through the clearance order. The clearance order, the contract this whole case was based on. Edward shows it to the jury. I had it on big boards in front of the jury and showed them the three sentences and said, this case is all about this. And then I said, well, it's not just all about this. It's also about the workers who killed themselves in these fields doing this work and being cheated in an unbelievable way. In the final moments of the case, Edward was so frustrated. And that's when I turned. Sitting in the courthouse is one of the Jamaican cutters who testified in the case, Adolphus Gordon. I turned and I said, Adolphus, stand up. And I remember saying, now look at this man. This is what this case is about. This man and 10,000 of his fellow workers. And just then I teared up unbelievably and turned my back on the jury and looked at Adolphus because I didn't want the jury to see how emotional I was. And he started to cry. And there was a silence in the courtroom that was so heartbreaking because the jury understood. And I believe that some of the jurors had tears in their eyes. Certainly Edward couldn't hold his emotion in any longer. That was probably my proudest moment in the whole 
The whole trial was having Adolphus stand up. Now the jury has got to make their decision. The judge sends them off to deliberate. Looking around, some jurors are crying. Who will they side with in this case? The cane cutters or the company? Over the last couple of episodes, you've gotten to know the billionaire Cuban exiles who are behind these companies, the Fun Hools. Now you know who the lawyers Dave and Edward are squaring off against. So, can these Davids slay these Goliaths? We're about to find out. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 6, The Decision and the Drama. To start, I just want to give you a quick refresher on where we're at with the case. It all started with a few idealistic lawyers. That includes Edward Tuddenham, who had a background in representing farm workers, and Dave Gorman, who was a contract specialist. They launched a class action lawsuit on behalf of thousands of sugarcane cutters from the Caribbean. They sued five farms, alleging that the farms systematically underpaid the men for years. This is not about how the workers were treated, even if it feels like it should be. This is about how they were paid. The lawyers are trying to get back pay for the workers. At the point we're at in the story, the lawyers had won a $51 million summary judgment, but that was promptly overturned on appeal. From there, the case was split up into five trials, all in front of juries. This first one, with Willie Gary and his sign, was against the farm called Atlantic Sugar Association which is owned by the Fon Hools company, Florida Crystals. And there's a lot on the line. If the verdict goes their way, that means tens of millions of dollars for the workers and a couple million for the lawyers too. And it would also mean a lot personally for Edward and Dave. They'd spent a decade working on this case and sunk a lot of their own time, money, and energy into it. If they lose, it'd be a big blow. The crux of their argument was this. According to their contracts, the cutters were entitled to $5.30 for every ton of cane they cut, but in actuality, they were paid closer to 3 or $4. The cutter side alleged that the sugar companies got away with it because it was hard to follow the very complicated payment system, how the men were paid for each row of cane they cut. All right, this is the closing, or part of it. Here's how Dave put it in his closing argument. This is before Willie made his frivolous case closing. As we have seen repeatedly throughout this trial, this is an industry which prospered and grew wealthy by making sure that nobody, except possibly the general manager and a board of directors and the owners, knew exactly what was going on. My clients are not here looking or asking for sympathy. They don't want pity. They came to this country to work hard to try to improve themselves. The only thing they need from you and the only thing they ask of you is that you consider the evidence fairly and you show these people that the fact that they don't live in this country does not mean that they can't come into a court in this country and receive justice. And if you do that, that is all they have to ask for and that is all we ask for. The Fonhul's lawyer, Willie Gary, disagrees. Of course, he says the case is what? Frivolous. But also this... No one expected that the cutters would be paid $5.30 a ton. 
None of the workers, none of the farmers, no one. He says in his closing, Now, if you can go back there and in your heart and say there's a contract where the parties agreed that they would pay $5.30 a ton for harvest cane, you answer it. But you know it's not there. It's not there, and it's never been there. Then Edward had Adolphus Gordon stand up, and the jury went off to deliberate. The judge asked the jury to answer a single question. Does the contract require Atlantic to pay plaintiffs a minimum task rate of $5.30 per ton of harvest cane? And with that, it's up to the jury. What do they believe? Who do they believe? Who will win? More after the break. The hours ticked away, and it became obvious to Dave Gorman that the jury members were going to take their time. They were out that whole first day, and the second day started, and they were out for several more hours. Meanwhile, there was one thing that was really worrying Dave and the other plaintiff lawyers, the jury instructions. Initially, obviously, I was concerned because the instructions were bad for us. The jury instructions were clearly stacked against them, they believed. Did they intend to pay them $5.30 a ton? No, they had budgeted $4 a ton. We knew that. On the other side, you have the cutters. Did they intend to get or expect to get $5.30 a ton? No, they did not know the document that that required even existed. Dave felt a more appropriate question would have focused on what the contract meant, not what the company intended. Like, what would a reasonable person expect to be paid after reading that contract? As the second day rolled on, though, and the jury was still deliberating, Dave became more hopeful. They could win this. When they didn't come right back in and and pour us out, You start to become optimistic. And the longer it goes, I figured the better it was for us. Because the instructions were tough. They were bad. Finally, the jury came back in. And Dave and Edward were convinced they knew what the verdict was. It was clear we'd lost. You can tell when a jury walks in, if they don't look at you, you lost. And really, I knew because they wouldn't look at me when they came in. I I knew we'd lost. And uh, was that disappointing? You betcha. You betcha. But then something strange happened. I was in the courtroom when the jury returned to the court. And there was one woman who was crying. And the foreman asked the judge to read an unusual statement. You know, the bailiff said that the jury had a note that they wanted the judge to read after after he read their verdict. This was really unusual. A note they wanted the judge to read? I've never had a jury send a note like that out, and I don't think the judge had either. What's this all about? Well, they're about to find out. First, the judge announces the verdict. He says, The jury rules in favor of Atlantic, in favor of the Fonholz company. It's true. Dave and Edward had lost. There was no surprise. It uh, it was heartbreaking, but there was no surprise. It, Uh, you know, 10 years of your life passed before your eyes and the injustice of it all weighs on you. But um, 
but there's no surprise. Then the judge pulls out the odd note that the jury had written and signed. Marie was sitting in the courtroom and remembers hearing the judge read it out. The jurors had written, Atlantic Sugar consistently misrepresented to the cutters the incentive features of their task system of payment. It was shameful. The way they were paid by the row of cane they cut, it was misrepresented. But then came the big but. However, the scope of the verdict form presented to us by the court was limited to a single issue. Does the contract require Atlantic to pay plaintiffs a minimum task rate of $5.30 per ton of harvest cane? The jury thought the company had acted shamefully. But when it came to the instructions from the judge, they couldn't rule against them. But there was one last line in the note. The jury said, This case was not frivolous. Powerful. Dave was grief-stricken, as was Edward, and the jurors were visibly moved, too. Apparently, one collapsed in the elevator on the way down. Okay, time for something to break up all this courty court stuff. Time for a bit of showbiz. In 1996, Demi Moore became the highest-paid actress in the world. The movie that earned her $12.5 million was the critical bomb... Striptease. Demi Moore plays a single mother who starts stripping to finance a custody battle for her daughter, only to find herself in some unusual situations. Well, that movie was actually based on a critically acclaimed book, a book written by Carl Hyacin. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Carl's both a journalist and a novelist. It's very rich material here for both the newspaper work and for... Uh and for fiction. There's only a fine line between the two of them here, Florida. The story of striptease is this. Demi Moore's character is working at this gentleman's club, and one night, a politician spots her. A congressman was in the audience at the strip joint one night, and he falls, you know, kind of bizarrely in love with her and becomes sort of a weird stalker. And uh, his only claim to power is that he's very tight with a family of sugar barons. And the name of the fictitious sugar barons? The Rojos. Demi Moore's character ends up giving the congressman, played by Burt Reynolds, a striptease on the Rojos' boat and even propositions him to do some sticky sideways tango on a massive pile of sugar in one of their warehouses. A politician in the pocket of a wealthy Latino sugar family in Florida. Sound familiar? Now, I was asked, and, you know, obviously at the time, if the, the sugar baron family in the novel was, was the Fan Hools, and of course I laughed and said, it's fiction. Are you kidding me? Even though Carl insists that the Rojo family is not based on the Fan Hools, obviously the Fan Hools weren't so convinced. They do famously own a super yacht, after all. So back when the novel first launched, Carl got a knock at his door. The visitor introduced himself, George, or something like George, anyway. I was living down in the Keys, and they sent a really nice guy to come down and take me to lunch and just sort of say, well, you want to come up and tour the sugar facilities, and you want to come up and see the plant and see the, the cane harvesting? I said, you know, I, I'll take a pass, but it's nice of you to offer. And he said, you know, I was just wondering about the book. Uh, people are saying, and I said, George, relax. It's just fiction. But he was clearly trying to 
trying to get me to say that it was a fan Olds, and I didn't, and I won't. But, but again, it was so smooth, and he was such a nice guy. And and I think, I think I ended up buying lunch. I think I bought him stone crabs or something because I figured he drove all the way to the Keys, and I wasn't going to go look at the sugarcane fields. Marie says this is a typical move of the fun holes. They're very cool. They never allow you to see any aspect of their uh, discomfort. They have layers of PR people who t- and lawyers who take care of that, who fight their battles for them. They have boatloads of money. Uh, they can afford to do all that. Plenty of cash to pump into PR reps and to lawyers and maybe even for visits to novelists. They're not going to let their reputation be tainted. They're going to fight until the bitter end. So, back to the lawsuit. Even though the Atlantic trial had concluded, the end was not in sight yet. After the Atlantic jury trial wrapped up, the Cutters' lawyers didn't quit. Far from it. They got right back to work. That's because there were actually three more trials on the horizon. Edward never wanted to throw in the towel. Edward is an idealist. He believed, I'll live again, I'll fight another day, I'll mortgage my house, I'll max out my credit cards. Edward and Dave barely had any money left for the case. Facing off against these massive sugarcane companies was a real financial drain. But Dave and Edward kept at it. Throwing in the towel wasn't an option. Do you consider yourself to be a stubborn person? No, not, I mean, uh, I prefer determined, I think. Not stubborn. I stubborn. Stubborn to me implies that you're going to stick to a position, even if somebody puts facts in front of you to show that you're wrong. I don't really think I'm stubborn. I think I I will not be run over easily, but I don't think that makes me stubborn. The semantics of stubborn aside, the Atlantic trial loss didn't stop Dave. Even if it was expensive, time-consuming, exhausting, he continued working on the other cases. You decided to keep going. Well, what am I supposed to do? What would what, you do? What would you, what would you have me do? Say to these guys, uh, sorry, I'm tired of doing this. I mean, seriously, what, what would you have me do? That's the question. What should I have done? What would be the right thing to do, do you think? I don't know. It's difficult for me to put myself in, your, in that position, but it must have been emotionally draining. Well, of course it was. But financially draining, too. I was putting in more time than anybody else because I was at every hearing and I believe every single deposition, and there were lots. But these guys got screwed, okay? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I. A smarter guy would have would have walked away, I guess. I don't know. But I just, that's, I couldn't see me doing that. Next up, the trial against another Funhul company, this one called Okalanta. The Okalanta trial unfolded almost identically to the Atlantic. It was obvious we weren't going to win. At what point did you think we're not going to win this? Oh, probably the second day of a three, three and a half week trial. Then there was the Sugarcane Growers Co-op trial, a cooperative made up of dozens of small to medium-sized sugarcane farms in Florida. Bottom line is we lost that. We had basically the same 
jury instructions that were killing us every time. They lost that one, too. And it's like, Jesus, you know, what, what else can go wrong here? So far, they'd lost every trial. Three. It had to have been disappointing at the minimum. Oh, uh, risk-cutting disappointing. <laughs> I had been working on the case. If you counted the initial trying to figure out what was going on, I'd probably been working on the case for 15 years. It had been 50% of my life during those 15 years, and it had all come to nothing. The lawsuits had become like a mold, growing, proliferating, overrunning their lives. Edward was even growing sugarcane in his backyard to study it. Greg Shell, who represents migrant farm workers too, was watching from the sidelines. Dave was who had been, I think, doing reasonably well as a, in his prior practice, was all of a sudden not making any money because these cases were not paying off. So Dave's practice was slipping badly, and it, would, it coincided with Dave's marriage was breaking up. I think it was a tough time for Dave in a lot of ways. And the legal dream team was falling apart. Relations between the lawyers representing the cane cutters were disintegrating. More after the break. There's one piece of tape I want to play you from my interview with Edward Tuddenham that says a lot about what happened next. You know how people talk about a pregnant pause, like a silence that's loaded with meaning? Well, this pause was in its third trimester. It's when I asked Edward about his co-counsel, Dave Gorman. Tell me about Dave. What kind of guy is he? Um. He's a very nice guy, very smart, very smart. Okay, look, I'm not trying to stir up anything or read too much into this, but that pause to me is imbued with five and a half seconds of flashbacks of what happened between the lawyers after they lost the first three jury trials. When you lose, there's a, a human tendency to finger point and figure out why did we lose? And I think the lawyers had very different views of this. Inevitably, in a case like this, the lawyers are exhausted. They are uh, doing a lot of second guessing. It is, why did this happen? Why did that happen? And they were angry with each other. I think people were more inclined to be accusatory of one another rather than sort of the cooperative group that had started out with this case. There's two sides, maybe three, to every story, right? From Edward's perspective, he thought they needed a better trial lawyer to help them. I was convinced that it was a waste of time to go forward with any more trials without hiring somebody who was more experienced and better equipped to do a jury trial than we were. Dave disagrees. He thought that our problem was not being able to explain it to the jury. And I said, no, Angie, you're wrong. The jury got the case. They understood it. It was the judge that screwed us. So Edward brings in this lawyer from Texas, which did not go down well. And said, here's my friend, Tim. Tim is a brilliant lawyer and he can win this case. Certainly insinuating that Dave Gorman, you're not good enough. Then there's another side of the story. The Vanity Fair article had been simmering in the background. 
Then this whole movie deal hit. Movie deal? Yeah, there's another movie to talk about in this story. As all this was unfolding, Marie publishes her article in Vanity Fair about the case and the lawyers. According to Edward, he agreed to be interviewed and help Marie because he thought the article might be turned into a movie and generate some money for the cases. It might be picked up for a movie and there would be movie rights and we could make some money that would fund further litigation because we were pretty much running out of funds. And guess what? It did get optioned for a movie. None other than Robert De Niro's production company, Tribeca Productions, and Universal Pictures wanted to make it. He was going to star in it, and amazingly, Jodie Foster was going to direct and star alongside him. They were willing to pay for my life rights and my wife's life rights. So we did this thinking this would generate funds for the case. Because there was one case still ongoing, this was legally a big problem. Legally in the United States, you are not, as an attorney, permitted to sell literary or film rights to a case that's still active. The reason being that you may sort of start playing to the cameras. In other words, you'll make decisions that are going to benefit you or your literary rights or your film rights rather than what's best for your client. And you're supposed to be looking out for your client at all times. The case was still going on. You you can't do that. We didn't want to make it public, but I told Ed that... uh, He couldn't stay on the case. I was terminated from the case, and what funds were paid initially for the life rights didn't go to the case, and eventually Jodie Foster decided not to make the movie, so it never generated very much. So that's when we parted ways. Right at that same time, my daughter was born, my first child, and I was happy to stay home and you know, take care of my daughter and try to forget about sugarcane. That's hard to do when you have a roll of sugarcane growing in your backyard. Well, I didn't forget about it completely. <laughs> it's a very pretty plant. I had other things in my life other than sugarcane for once. And, you know, people heal. So Edward gets kicked off the case. By now, it's the early 2000s. The lawyers have been working on these class actions for some 15 years, and it had all come to naught. But there was still one chance to prevail, one chance to get the workers their back wages. The final jury trial, the one against Osceola. The Osceola case was on life support. The farm is owned by the Funhuls, so it's not going to be an easy fight. Here, Greg officially joins the legal team, and he and Dave decide to shift their tactics completely. We decided that since we were not getting anywhere, you know, it's like the definition of insanity, of course, is to keep doing the same thing and hope for a different result. While they're at it, let's step back a little. The amount of off and out of the courtroom drama in this case, it was an epic canvas of American life. So next time, We've got our journalistic shovel ready because we're digging further into things going on in the periphery of this case. Things that bring into focus the power of big sugar in America. Not just in terms of legislation and migrant workers, but also something even more personal to you. 
how the industry has transformed the very food you eat. It's been behind closed doors. You know, they really have had a strategy to influence the public. We tag along with a dentist turned detective who uncovered the industry's crafty PR strategies. Maybe it actually was a conspiracy, you know, behind the scenes. It's something that uh, we didn't know about. That's next time on Big Sugar. It's pretty astounding, their power. Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and Novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Clokey, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Meri. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolfe. Our fact checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amortigi. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article In the Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.